Welcome to Thrivers, nonprofit leadership for the next normal. I'm your host, Tucker Wanamaker, the CEO of Thrive Impact. And our mission is to solve nonprofit leader burnout because burnout is the enemy of creating positive change. And that's why we're all here, is to create positive change. And we want to connect you with impactful mission-driven leaders and ideas so that you can learn to thrive in today's nonprofit landscape because it's a tough one out there. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm joined here today, as usual, with my uh, co-host, Sarah Fanslow, our Chief of Impact. Sarah, good to be on the show with you today. Great to be here. And uh, I'm, I'm actually really excited to interview you because, you know, uh, there, are, there are so many topics in the nonprofit world that, and we are not experts on all of them, for sure. Okay. Um, but one, one area that we do have pretty deep and clear expertise is through you, Sarah, which is through things like impact evaluation. Because like I said earlier in the opening, we're not all here to just do nice things in the world, right? <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Well, hopefully not, right? We're not here to just be charitable and nice. Uh, we're here to uh, create positive change, like yeah. actually create positive change. That's why we're here. In some ways, that's why we're judged or how we're judged in terms yeah, of yeah. what makes us a great nonprofit. And uh, so, Sarah, I just wanted to, first of all, um, before we get into the pains around evaluation, this is really our next normal topic is around evaluation, is tell us a little bit about what course you're going through, kind of your your background from a uh, um, uh, some of the, like the master's degree you already have, the yeah. master's degree that you're at, that you're getting right now. And just some sure. of your background and history around that. And then let's hop into some of the pains right after that. Awesome. Yeah. So I have a, um, a, my, a master's of science already from the London School of Economics um, in social policy and development studies. Um, but I've been interested in research uh, for an evaluation for a long time um, as part of my undergraduate degree, which I got from Emerson College, I studied abroad in Brazil and um, conducted research looking at how uh, women living in the northeast of Brazil, I was in a place called Fortaleza, understood themselves as citizens based on their access to resources and where they were located geographically in the city. Um, and so I leveraged interviews. I worked with the university there, the geography department, um, and then I went to LSE and I got my master's and, and while working there and afterwards, I worked at a think tank called the Young Foundation, which was a think tank and center for social innovation in London. And um, my job there was a researcher and I worked with teams of folks to really look at the impact of social policies from the lens of people who were experiencing them. And so we used ethnography, which has been called kind of like deep hanging out. You literally go live somebody's life with them for a while, right? And, deep hanging um, out. I love that. Yeah, deep That's a technical out. term, right? <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> uh, to get, you know, to really see, to observe and to talk with um, and see people's lives. And so used interviews and surveys and focus groups and ethnography in that context um, and published a number of, of um papers for central and local government. Um, and then I came back to the States and did work in the social determinant space and continued to do research. You know, while I was um, a program manager at Health Leads, I was working out of Bellevue Hospital here in New York City. And our work was around the social determinants of health, which is about breaking that link between poverty and poor health. Um, mm. And, you know, we realized this was, you know, like 12 years ago now. Um, and the social determinants were you know, not as well known as they are now. And so part of what I did working with the 
um, head of pediatrics and the chief resident at the time was design a study um, that we got IRB or institutional review board approval to conduct in the hospital environment to better understand what physicians actually knew about psychosocial need. Um, what they didn't know about it and and what they understood about how to refer for it. And that really helped um, the organization as a whole have a set of data to really prove the need for their intervention and then to help us better mm. design the program around it. Um, and then I moved into, you know, the civic engagement space, which we've talked about and continue to do evaluation work. So I have a lot of experience here, but um you know, my goal a while ago was to go get my PhD and um, I got, you know, accepted into a fully funded program and then had to decline it because I had a, a baby and a brain tumor at the same time. And, you know, oh, two man. benign growths at one time, just not enough time in, in the world. So, you know, I just recently was able to get back into academia via this um, this master's program that I'm doing at Claremont Graduate University um, which is around evaluation and applied research. And, you know, it feels really great to be back there. I love going to school. I know not everybody <laughs> does, but um, that's a little bit of my my history here. Well, and I always do love how much energy you get, like after you go through <laughs> one of the classes. Uh, I mean, not only is it obviously incredibly relevant to our work at Thrive Impact and to the nonprofits that we work with in our community, and uh, but you just have so much energy around it, which it's I love, so right? It's, yeah. it's like you get this big smile on your face and that's such an important piece. Um, yeah. well, you know, Sarah, as you've been, uh, you've obviously been in this space of impact evaluation for quite a while. Um, and you've gone even deeper, of course, in this master's program through Claremont. Yeah. Uh, let's hop into some of the pains. What have you been noticing? Um, and maybe you've noticed it's not just in this last program, uh, in this last master's program that you're in or the one that you're currently in, but even in before, but what are the pains or the issues that nonprofit leaders are really experiencing regarding evaluation of their impact? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, they, most nonprofits don't have staff trained to do this work. Um, and so, uh, and so because of that, many nonprofits just don't do it. Right. And 10 or 15 years ago, that was okay. Um, it's not anymore, right? It's not anymore. Um, before it was okay if people were just measuring outputs, which is like the number of kids or the number of hours and things things like that, right? And um, funders now, especially the bigger funders and the more serious foundations are really asking people to go beyond outputs to short and medium term outcomes and then potentially long-term outcomes or impact. And so the problem, especially for small community-based nonprofits, is that most of them don't have staff with um, research or evaluation skills. And then it is time, it takes time and money to hire uh, external folks to do it. And so because of that, a lot of people um, just aren't doing it. They just aren't doing it or aren't doing it well. And that certainly is a real challenge. Mm. It's, it feels like uh, almost an injustice on nonprofits that there is what what we are judged by is not what we are supported in order to so like true. given support for in order to whether it's the professionalization, which is we know this in our work around uh, professional development, leadership development is a, a drastic last lack of funding around that. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, just the literal time and money to literally evaluate and what that means. Sure. And yet that's what we're judged on. So it's like this massive problem, it sounds like inside of nonprofits, especially small community based ones. Yeah, for sure. And then, I mean, I think one of the things I really 
um, got a better sense of through Claremont is just, um, you know, the the professionalization of the field of, of evaluation itself. You know, one of the things um, that I really learned, especially last semester in my theory-driven evaluation course, was that, you know, evaluation is, is really booming as a field. Um, and so, for example, in the late 70s, there were two professional evaluation societies. And in 2018, there were more than 100, <laughs> more than 100. Wow. So like there's been a huge explosion in um, evaluation as a um, as a field and as a career field. And, you know, what's happening as a result of that is that there are a lot of people doing it who, quite frankly, haven't been trained to do it. Um, and so that, that's, I think, another pain is a lot of folks have can have out there a a plaque that says, I'm an evaluator, I do program evaluation or policy evaluation without really having been trained in, in what that means. And there is a really specific science here um, around what, you know, what evaluation looks like. And there's a number of kind of different branches or approaches to evaluation that one can take. Um, and, you know, many evaluators just, um, you know, haven't received the formal education to understand that or to, to base their approaches, you know, on that science because they haven't um, been able to, to get the education. So I think that's another pain and which isn't to say that evaluators who haven't been professionally trained are not bringing value, you know, just to be completely clear, I'm sure many do bring a lot of value, but for small community-based nonprofits who may have to rely on folks who are less expensive, there's just a real variation in the field that is partially born out of the fact that it has so rapidly expanded and is still, you know, really in its nascency. Mm-hmm. Well, and Sarah, I want to, I want to dive just a little bit deeper in this pain, which is because of these things, what's, what's really happening inside of a nonprofit because of a lack of training a lack of understanding of what what positive cha- or change I should say we're yeah. having. Um, what's really happening underneath the surface? Like it's like the it's like our favorite question, which we'll ask later around. What's made possible, but on the positive. But what's what's made what ultimately is made possible on the negative side yeah. because of these pains? What's really yeah. happening here? Well, I think you know at the most basic level, it means that a lot of programs are designed based on good intentions, but not good science um, is what it comes down to. And so, uh, and, you know, again, like good intentions are nothing to laugh at. That's really important that we care about what we're doing. But fundamentally, so many nonprofits are not actually constructing their programs and the theory of change, which is really, you know, about how all of the program components work together in support of the ultimate outcomes or impact, many of those are just not based on social science research or theory. Um, And so, for example, when, um, you know, we just finished or wrapped up a six-month program with the Pikes Peak Community Foundation, where we developed, you know, a leadership collaborative and many other things. And one of the... um, one of the things that I did as part of my graduate program was to create a theory of change for our leadership collaborative. Um, and the theory of change is different from a logic model. A logic model, right, says how do the inputs and the activities line up with um, all of these other things? And it's a little it's a lower altitude um, kind of connect the dots between the 
outputs, the activities, the outputs, and the impact. A theory of change is a higher level, can still be a visual diagram, but it's really representing um, the change that happens um, in the participants as a result of the program. And so it's really mostly focused on the short-term um, outcomes, the medium-term and the longer-term outcomes. Mm. And so as I was doing the evaluation proposal for um, this class that I was in, I was really focused on that that leadership uh, collaborative. And, and so what that means is what I did as I said, looking at the pieces of the program, and I'm going to take the initial outcomes as an example for, for a minute here. Um, you know, part of what we wanted to do when first folks, 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 folks first got in the program <laughs> was to introduce them to concepts of leadership, right? To increase their awareness around leadership, which then, you know, we hoped or hypothesized would translate into a commitment to working on their leadership, which then would lead to an understanding of the core concepts of conscious leadership, right? Which would then transition into other things. But all of these pieces around awareness of skills or awareness of concepts, right? I, I put together in a set of hypotheses, which I then went to the so social science research and I said, based on existing theories, is this plausible? Does it hold water? Does it make sense? And so, for example, you know, one of the things we were working on with folks in the collaborative was um, awareness of opportunities for internal and external leadership growth. So we had them take an assessment and then set goals. So from that, we wanted to have them work on goal setting and commitment, right? Which would then lead to goal progress, which then was incorporated with goal reflection. And so I went to the social science research and I leveraged the work, um, the theory called cognitive dissonance theory, which is a theory that suggests that once we're confronted with information about how or whether our actions align with our self-belief, we work to reduce dissonance, which drives goal mm. commitment, which is a fancy way of saying, for example, if I took that leadership survey and I thought that I was a really great self-reflective leader, but actually upon taking that survey, I was like, you know what? I'm not so good here. It, that would that dissonance between what I thought dissonance. and what was true would drive me to say, you know what? I want to get better at what I thought I was already good at. And then it would help make me commit to that goal. Hmm. So that's an example of how social science theory can help back up or give validity to the ways in which a program is suggesting it makes change. You know, Sarah, you're hitting on a couple of things here. One, uh, you know, going back to that, uh, the piece around pains is, which is speaking a little bit into what you talked about with our thrivers is, um, is something you say a lot, which is the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Yeah. And, and if we don't know, if we don't have any form of data, which is difficult to find sometimes, and we'll get into mm -hmm. that here in a little bit around uh, what is that next normal and what are some practical steps for all who are listening? But if we don't know, then we may very well be doing harm. I mean, there's definitely yes. books out there like Toxic Charity is a good example of that. There, there, uh, where good intentions not met with good science can actually lead to negative change for people yes. when what we had yeah. set out to do was actually the positive change. Yeah. Um, and, and so if we don't have that objective, uh, then that becomes an issue for us that the very thing that we set out to do, we're, we're doing the exact opposite. I know we thought about this, actually, we've, we've wrestled with this from our work at Thrive of, 
of how do we create the conditions in a community that aren't perpetuating shame and guilt inside of a nonprofit mm. leader who already feels somewhat beat down. Yeah. And if we just have the power dynamic of an quote unquote expert coming in, and it's not that experts are bad. I mean, I just said that you're an expert in impact evaluation, but, but if, if we have workshops where all we have is an expert, but we don't allow that to go uh, in a more accessible way to the nonprofit leader, we actually may be perpetuating more guilt or shame. Like, oh, look, well, that expert has all their stuff figured out. Why don't I? And maybe I'm just not a good leader or maybe I'm right. And just perpetuating those cycles of reactivity. It was like, oh, we need to make sure that we are not actually perpetuating burnout versus 100%. actually getting rid of burnout. Yep. So totally. And, and really, you know, the social science theories that our program design or methodology is based on, you know, is um, action or experiential learning, right? Um, and, and that is in and of itself a, a theory that has been proven by research to be effective right, to be effective in helping people learn skills as well as connect their peers and have a higher sense of satisfaction. So mm. 100%, I think what we're, we're both getting to here is that, um, you know, nonprofits, one, one of the real challenges, if you don't have something like a theory of change that's, that's um, validated or backed up by social science research, is that a lot of times the the pieces of the puzzle just don't make sense. They don't actually fit together, right? Um, and so that's why it's it's so, so important, not just to say, what do we hypothesize happens, but then how does the existing research support that? And then to your point, what does it look like when we measure it, right? Like we could have a great hypothesis of change, but then when we measure it, we may even that's backed up by social science research, and then we may measure it in different populations and realize you know what? Part of the hypothesis didn't prove true for a certain group. And I'll give you an example there. You know, at my last organization, we had a theory of change and logic model. It was backed up by social science research. We created a pre and post assessment using validated scales for use with young people. And we gave it to the young people in our program, right? And one of the things we found was that um, lower income middle school students were actually seeing um, decreases in some of the scales that we were hoping they would see increases on. Mm. And that was because the program was built for high school students. And it had naturally evolved to middle school students because everyone was like, this is so great. We have to bring it to middle school. But this is where the concept of generalizability is so important, right? Like oftentimes we just think, oh, because this thing worked here, it'll work there. And mm. that is so often not true. Um, and so that's just another reason why, you know, we have to go, we have to build our program based on logic. We have to validate it with social science research, and then we have to test it using real scales and real measurement. And we have to see who it works for and who it doesn't. And then we meet, need to make adjustment or changes. But if you're a nonprofit leader hearing this, you're probably like, oh my gosh, that sounds like so much work. I That's do exactly what I was thinking. I was like, oh man, here I am. I'm sitting here, a small nonprofit leader, right? I've got multiple people pounding on my door. I'm in the human services work, yeah. you know, with a, a mother who I'm helping to recover from addiction or right. I'm sitting in the in the space between the community and the cops and, and helping reduce youth violence. And I get phone calls at one in the morning right. uh, to come out and to support, right? I'm thinking these are literal nonprofit leaders that totally. I'm thinking about right now with these stories. Yeah. Like what what is what is my, if I'm that person, what is my next normal yeah. uh, uh, around this, right? So that I can take the steps that I need to take um, 
Yeah. What is the next normal around this work and what are some steps that would make sense around it? Yeah, I think there's some do's and there's some don't do's. And I'm going to start with the don't do's because we see this a lot. Um, The first thing to not do, especially if you don't have a research base and a measurement tool is do not expand your programs and services, um, especially to groups you're not sure the intervention works in. So we see a lot of nonprofits um, who are expanding services like I like happened in my nonprofit because somebody asked you to because it sounds good at the moment, um, but you haven't done that thinking to think how will what change will we generate for this group that's different from the one that's currently using the services and how does the intervention needs to change Mm -hmm. in order to best serve that new population. So the first don't do is do not expand your services or your activities um, if you aren't first measuring the impact of the ones you already have. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Um, uh, and um, and especially don't do it if you're working with sensitive populations, I think is just the other piece that that I would add there. Um, Sarah, I, that reminds, reminds me of an analogy that I've thought about with my own house, which is uh, <laughs> we're not, and we're so guilty of this, is you know, for everything we bring into the house, we need to take something out of the house. Totally. It's like, you know, verse as instead, what happens, of course, is everything that comes in would just keeps compiling, right? We just, yes. we just got this overwhelm of stuff and then we're feeling bogged down and heavy. Um, but if we have a discipline around, you know, don't add a program unless you're already evaluating something and know what's going on in the first place. Right. Um, you know, this gets back to our shift that we use around don't or stop saying yes yeah. and double down on your unique value. Well, know what your unique value is uh, you know, and get into it and go deeper there and then go into other services. Big time. Uh, yeah. yeah. And that just reminded me of my last organization, um, you know, well-intentioned program folks who are so passionate about the work would often come to me and say, oh, I want to add this or I want to add that. And I had to be the holder of no a lot. And I would use an analogy, which is to say, you know, when we're building an addition to the house, we don't just like you know, um, tack on, like, let's say it's a blue house. We don't just be like, oh, I'm going to put, you know, a pink window over there because I need a window and just like add on without thinking about how it's going to fit in with the rest of the house, right? We have to build an addition to the house that is built on the integrity of the existing house and matches, right, with that house. And so often, additions in the nonprofit space are just like that. It's like, well, let me throw this like new room up here and it's going to look different and maybe the floorboards are higher, but who cares? Right. And so we just, we have to be really intentional. We have to be really intentional. And that means saying no a lot, which is uncomfortable straight up. It's uncomfortable. Well, and, Sarah, so. and, and, and in that Sarah, which I think this is definitely in the next normal is what are the, sometimes saying no can be really difficult yeah. because it becomes like a, almost like a conf- yeah. confrontation, right? Are there, were there questions that you would even ask to, you know, it's a little bit of like the, what does it take? Yeah, exactly. Um, But like, are there questions that you can ask that help program staff or a board member uh, or whatever that you can have them work on the work that needs to be done? Yeah. Like to help them to determine what will it take? What are the questions that somebody might ask? Well, for sure. I mean, I think if it's a brand new thing that you want to add on, definitely the what does it take and, you know, what both positive and negative implications might it have and and being really explicit that there may be negative implications as well. 
Um, you know, so for example, a lot of times folks expand programming without expanding staff or resources, which means the staff (laughs) or resources dedicated to the existing work get stretched thinner, which means the impact for the existing work gets thinner. Right. So that is, I think, one of the, the first things. But I would say there's always a way to deepen and make richer Uh, existing programming. And that's where I would point folks' attention, right? So for example, if you're working with young people on, like I was, service learning, how could you improve or enhance their training that they already get? How could you improve or enhance, right, a part of the program that you're already delivering in line with the change you want to make? And that's where I really suggest most most folks focus. Um, But on the, you know, going back to your original question on the do's and the do's and don't do, you know, I think what folks can do is start small. Um, You can look at your existing program um, and in the show notes, we can put a, uh, a link to a logic model template. Start with a logic model. Start with a logic model. Have your whole program staff get together and think about together, what are your inputs? What are your activities? What are your outputs, outcomes and impact? And just start there, right? Just start there. Um, cause it's, it's a great way to make explicit what might be implicit to folks. Um, and then I would really focus in on the latter half of that, um, of the theory of that logic model and think about developing a theory of change, which is to say, how does the change actually take place in our program and what research might support it? Now, the research I did was really deep. And I'll say, because I'm a student at Claremont, I have access, free access to all of the all of the articles, all of the scholarly research I want, right? Many folks don't have that access if they're not in school right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could, you know, you can certainly go online. Google Scholar has a ton of great, ac- a ton of access to great academic research. Some of it is available for free. And do some research to look at other similar interventions that have similar outcomes to yours and and find a few studies that prove or disprove that what you're doing may actually work with the population you're serving. So that's where I would suggest folks start is do a logic model, it, you know, just start somewhere and find some research that might help you um, make the case that your intervention is going to actually have the intended outcomes with the population that you're serving. And then the second thing I do is I would say get creative with finding resources for evaluation. And there's two things to think about here. One is a lot of a lot of universities, um, you know, have students who are working, looking for projects to do as part of their research projects, like me, right? Right now I'm doing a research project with an organization. And, um, you know, so, for example, at my last organization, we worked with Furman University and an AmeriCorps student who was getting a master's degree. And she uh, helped us create our our theory of change, our logic model and our pre and post assessment. And, you know, it was really low cost because um, AmeriCorps dollars were paying for it. So um, a lot of universities need case studies. Go to your local university and see what they have available. Right. Like ask them. Um, their students are always looking for for opportunities to do research in, in real life organizations. Um, and, um, you know, and then, of course, interns as summer comes up or, or whatever comes up, you know, look for those interns who are doing evaluation or research 
um, and have access to the scholarly database that might help you as an organization get access to tools and resources you wouldn't otherwise be able able to get. Um, so mm. those are a few things that I think nonprofit leaders can do. Well, and you know, another thing too that came up, you know, I, when I was the head of fundraising at, at an organization, we explicitly put, you know, I don't remember, I think it was twenty thousand dollars in the budget explicitly for impact evaluation. Yes, which fed, of course, very beautifully into that grant grant process that we're in. Yeah, is hey, we want to make sure that your investment into our program is actually producing the results that you're looking for, <laughs> as are we for that matter too. Yeah. We're looking for those same results. But yeah, we we put it directly in there saying we need to continue to ramp this up. Um, and and that that particular foundation was totally open to that. Yes. Um, for sure. You know, Sarah, you also mentioned another thing around a, 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 a tactic. And I'm going back to you were talking about program staff. And uh, you know, the the phrase that always comes to mind for me is one from a dear mentor of mine, Bill Milliken, uh, the founder of Communities and Schools. And, uh, you know, and that program or that, that nonprofit is, uh, based upon longitudinal data, the best dropout prevention program in the country. Yeah. Uh, and they have like real longitudinal data, mm. but Bill back in the early, you know, eighties used to say, we have to move from charity into change. Totally. We have to move from charity into change. And, yeah. and I was thinking about what you had shared around program staff that when you're hiring for program staff, what, what should people be looking for? You know, it may not be like the professional evaluator per se, but what's the mindset and the approach that program staff, that that nonprofit leaders need to be looking for in program staff when it comes to having this bent towards not just being charitable and nice, but that they're actually geared towards change and understanding what that is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think especially at, you know, mid to larger size nonprofits and even smaller finding somebody um, with not just a programming background, but also ideally an impact and or research background. And it doesn't have to be explicitly evaluation, but somebody who's done some research work before, right? Um, I think it's really important that folks come in with that mindset, that analytical mindset, um, where they respect and know how to use and want to collect and analyze data. Um, and so I would really look for somebody with um, that skill set to to lead your program. It's really most important in terms of the leader of your program that they understand um, how to develop programs based on science and on um, previous research. And then I think for program staff, it's it, it, you know it's really an opportunity for sk- skill building is the way I think about it. Um, you know, program staff who are actually implementing the program may or may not have to have a great um, facility with data. However, I think, you know, when you hire a VP or head of programs who does, they will bring it into the day to day with staff in order to help staff understand the importance of that data and then leverage it to make decisions. Um, so, for example, at my last organization, you know, when I came in, we were not collecting data, um, you know, really much at all um, and not in a consistent way. And then we really weren't using it to make decisions. Um, And so one of the things that, you know, I did as we were creating this logic model and theory of change was to create a kind of a spectrum of program implementation from low to high, um, with the idea being that if you are implementing the program at a high level, which meant like, you know, the young people were taking advantage of, you know, most of the opportunities offered, they were doing all of the activities, 
all the program managers were checking in at a certain level um, that we could hypothesize that those were going to lead to higher increases on the pre and post test because the young people were more engaged in the program. But guess what? If we're not tracking implementation and using that as a discussion point, we can't have that conversation about what needs to change, right? And so um, that was one thing that I brought to that organization was a scorecard that I looked at with my program managers monthly, which is just to say, what does implementation look like right now? How, how much and to what degree are the young people in the program actively participating? How much and to what degree are you going out and teaching um, so that we could make adjustments to those, not in a punitive way, but in a like, what does it look like to increase engagement way in support of the overall aims and objectives? So for me, I think the most important hire is that person leading your program. They need to know and understand and really have a a passion and appetite around data and then mm. I think that person can work with the team and the staff to help other folks have that same passion. Mm, I love that. Uh, you know, what's what's made possible if these things happen, right? If you if you put some of these these pieces in place around um, your your do's and your don'ts, starting small, putting a logic model together. You know, I'm I'm thinking about you know uh, in our Thriver program that we just did, right, with the Pikes Peak Community Foundation, that community, that learning community. Uh, you know, we did an impact in the story uh, energizer, which is yeah. a, basically in our case was a three workshop series, uh, two of them about impact evaluation yep. uh, or one of them anyway, however it was. Um, but like even stories like that, wh- what was made possible for even those nonprofit leaders or what's made possible when you're able to get into this space around hiring right, starting small, putting logic models together? What does that enable in your organization? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, ultimately the goal is to you make make the positive change that you hope to see in the world, right? I think that's the ultimate goal of that that work, um, and so I think it makes that impact possible, that positive impact possible. Um, I also think what it makes possible is um, focus. And and that is, I think, a big thing for nonprofits. A lot of nonprofits are so much duplication, right? There's competition instead of collaboration, in part because people extant, expand without thinking about, should I be actually doing this? And, you know, what does it take to do it well? And so I think if more nonprofits were doing this work of evaluating impact, they would be doing less. <laughs> um, they would be doing less and maybe they'd be doing the less that they're doing better. And so like that is ultimately what I see. I I see a, you know, a tightening up of the nonprofit landscape in the best possible way. Right Mm. now, so many nonprofits are just doing, it's a little bit like a rummage sale sometimes, right? It's like all of the things and I get it, you know, it's hard to say no, but ultimately I think if our goal is change and not charity, then we have to start measuring because measuring is going to help us say no. Hmm. You know, you also said something else too that was making me think about from a made possible perspective is is this gives data to inform uh, from an objective perspective. Like you, at the very beginning of this, you talked about that story from the hospital. You said you said something around, you know, based upon the data that we were able to gather directly from the physicians, yeah. that said, this is an important program for us to now do. Big and time. that gave buy-in, I'm guessing, yeah. to to all the pieces, right? Um, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the story I remember from Kevin Hagen, our co-founder at Thrive Impact. And, he, you know, he said, 
he was the head of, he was the CEO of Feed the Children and his program officer came to him with a, with some very clear data around the cost and the impact of this particular program, with, which was in an orphanage uh, in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And it was like, it was like uh, $2,500 per kid that it costs to create the same level of impact as uh, something else, which was, uh, costs like $50 per kid. I can't remember the exact numbers, Yeah. but if like his program officer wouldn't have had the data to be able right. to share the return on that impact, uh, and the return on that investment, there's no way. I mean, that was an orphanage that Kevin had a, like very close to his heart, yes. you know, based upon Kevin's story. And, and he shared that before, but without that data, it just would have been a subjective conversation of like, and there's no way Kevin would have said something about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so creating that objectivity sound, seems like uh, what's made possible is, frankly, better conversations because you're mm -hmm. not in subjective arguments. Definitely. Of, of what I think versus what you think. We're actually having a conversation about the data. And I remember this happened for me, too, when I was at my last organization as well, that I got so tired of the subjective conversations because yeah. it was just it ultimately became arguments. Yeah. And then I was like, well, God, I need to get some form of data <laughs> that I yes. can grab onto. Yeah. And then and then my conversations with my CEO were literally conversations about the data. Right. And when he he would not agree with it, I would just with me, I wouldn't say, Oh, you're not I wouldn't feel like he was disagreeing with me. I would say, Well, what does the data say? Right. What is the data suggesting we do? And so it allowed for us to have, frankly, literally better conversations that were for much sure. less contentious uh, around around moving forward. Yeah. And I, I will say that, you know, the conversations aren't always, you know, uh, there can be a range of the answers from like, let's stop doing this to like, let's create the conditions for this thing to work within the population that we're serving. So, for example, in, in the example I gave earlier about low income middle school students, you know, ultimately there wasn't enough political will to stop um, delivering that program to middle school students. But what we could do is say, so here are the middle school students it works for, and here's what they need in order for it to be effective for them, right? And so it also helps have that conversation about the resources necessary to produce the positive change, which, again, is just then, you know, a, a much easier conversation to have because it's not a, I think they need this. It's a, based on the data, right? Here's the gap and here's the deficit. We need to fill it. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I loved how you said didn't have enough political will. <laughs> and I'm just thinking about all the organizations that are out there and leaders who are working with their boards as an example. And how hard is it to say no to the sacred cows? Really <laughs> that's, that's, that's what you're talking about, right? The political will is yeah. at a higher level in the organization yes. to say no because to something that we so deeply care about because maybe we started it or whatever, Correct. right? Which yeah. is why I started with the don't do's. I started with the don't do's because it's so easy to not to stop something that hasn't been started, right? Because it's not started. Once you <laughs> yeah. start something and so actual hard. people are benefiting from it, even if it's two or three and they have beautiful stories to tell, the ability for people to take that away. I mean, it's just so hard. It's mm -hmm. just so hard, which is why yeah. the don't do is out there for me is the first step. Like if you do not have evidence that your thing works, like, first of all, that's your first step. And then if you want to bring something to another population in another context, like do, if you don't have data to suggest that your approach is generalizable to another population, don't start it until you have that data because mm -hmm. stopping it is so hard. So hard. So hard. Well, I want to turn this into a part two because Sarah, I know you have a lot more 
deeper wisdom and uh, around qualitative research, research specifically. Uh, so maybe we'll create, we'll do another podcast going maybe a little bit of a deeper dive yeah. into things like appreciative inquiry, uh, qualitative research, Love different it. methods of surveys, yeah. uh, interview questions, sequencing of those questions. Cause uh, I think some getting even more granular to let people I kind of want to let you just like geek out for a while and then let's see how it goes, uh, you know, and, but I, but I think that that what you're learning and, and have learned not only through lived experience, but also your first and second master's program yeah. uh, is deeply um, uh, important to this space. And even if, you know, you would take people to like level 10 and they're at a level two right now, you know, and there's a big gap in between, maybe that's okay. I just sure. kind of want to let you go deeper and share some of this, like, you know, what was that word that you used earlier with me? Satisficing. <laughs> Satisficing. I'm like, oh yeah, let's go into that. So anyway, uh, uh, thank you, Sarah, for sharing some of this wisdom, uh, particularly for the small community-based nonprofits that we serve and that we work with and that we are and, um, and appreciate your level of heart. Like what I see in you, Sarah, with this is how deeply you care. And you're like, we have to care all the way to the level of mm. deep impact evaluation. It's actually yeah. an, an indicator of care. It is. Uh, that we actually care, yeah. not just to do the nice thing, but to actually make sure that that nice thing is actually creating the positive change. And Absolutely. That's, that's a level of care that I appreciate how much you bring to this, this mm. uh, sector. So thank you. Awesome. Well, we'll put a few things in the show notes, like Sarah mentioned, like a logic model. Maybe we'll find some other things that uh, we have around this, but uh, take a look at those in the show notes. But otherwise, uh, see you next time for part two. I'm just going to tee it up right now. Part two <laughs> of uh, Nonprofit Leadership for the Next Normal around impact evaluation. Sarah, thank you so much for all your heart and your great work. Thank you.